0: A once-in-a-century pandemic and a historic wave of protests dominated the headlines this past year. But how did the two affect each other?
1: Let's ask Alejandro.
0: I'm Laura Patalniak.
1: And I'm Luke Garrett.
0: This week, we take a deep dive into how the pandemic reshaped social organizing during a time when protests became ubiquitous in the DMV.
1: WTOP reporter Alejandro Alvarez has traveled the world, photographing social movements for the past five years. He told us what he saw on the ground during the Black Lives Matter protests this summer, as well as how COVID changed the way ideology spreads and how social movements ignite.
0: As you well know, this past summer, the United States saw massive protests across the nation and even internationally following the death of George Floyd at the hands of police. We saw here in the district weeks of protests and demonstrations, a lot of which you covered. And I was curious if you saw any indication that the pandemic had impacted the Black Lives Matter protests.
2: Yeah, so it's a good question. Uh, I have been covering protests in DC and elsewhere across the country in the world for about five years now. I've gotten a good taste of what protest entails both before the pandemic and then afterwards. And I can tell you that things have changed quite dramatically in the way that people really altered their behavior when it comes to grassroots organizing. People moved online, they moved to social media, they made their news feeds, their profiles, the center of their political activists. Before the pandemic, the main mediums of people rallying the masses would be email chains, news releases, uh, and stuff like that. But after... The pandemic hit and you saw all these new groups pop up that really kind of took over from the old guard in being the ones that made the calls for organizing. You saw a lot of that stuff cropping up in terms of easily shareable, simple flyers on Instagram. Just the way that the algorithm works, if you interact with one or two of these flyers, the algorithm serves you just a ton more like it. It kind of plugs you into that community. So in a way that kind of served as an entry point for a lot of people to really follow what these groups, which began quite small, with a couple of hundred followers at most, what they were doing. It's actually quite impressive because a lot of these groups, the one that comes to mind is Freedom Fighters DC, which was one of the first groups actually that cropped up in the aftermath of the Floyd killing. They're only about, you know, maybe a dozen people at most. And despite that, they were able to bring thousands of people to the streets for several days on end. There's a number of other groups as well. Good Cooperative is one of them. They Them Collective is another one. Through these mediums like Instagram, despite them being relatively small and previously obscure groups, it distributed these flyers, really simple stuff like name of the event, one or two lines about what it's about, a place to organize and time to do it at. Organizations like that, I think they really were the ones that brought thousands to the streets.
0: In June of last year, Dr. Anthony Fauci actually told WTOP in an interview with us that these kind of protests, the mass gatherings with people yelling, create a perfect setup for the spread of
1: this virus. It's a delicate balance. The reasons for demonstrating are valid. And yet the demonstration itself puts one at an additional risk.
0: When you were out, what did you see in terms of health concerns? Like you said, we went a lot online, but there was still a very prolific turnout in person.
2: Yeah, I think there's always a certain amount of risk involved with any sort of organizing on the streets. It's not like the pandemic disappeared from people's minds. There was a risk of mm. infection, but it's a risk, you know, given the topic, given the outrage that emerged over the video that was filmed of George Floyd's death, it's a risk that people were willing to take. As a photographer, I always try to document this in as best way as I can, but at the vast majority of those protests, if not all the protests that I covered in that spring into early summer last year... Basically, everybody had some sort of face covering on, which was the recommendation. More often than not, people were attempting to socially distance. That's not always easy, you know, given the nature of a protest. And there is a lot of shouting. There is a lot of talking. But I think that it's something that really persisted on people's minds. Whenever you see to this day, even all the protest calls, please keep in mind social distancing. You must have a mask. And the organizers do enforce this. So we've touched on the virtual aspect
1: that this pandemic had on social organizing, the health concerns of literally being on the ground. I'm curious if you can speak at all to the emotion and the movement itself during this past summer. This pandemic forced isolation onto many of us, and death was on the minds of everyone, you know, as this swept through the country and the world. Do you think that had any impact on the social movement springing forth and sparking?
2: That's a great question. And it's one that I am still trying to think through, you know, because I really haven't seen any protest movement as consistent as the one that we saw last summer in DC. I strongly do believe that the pandemic being in the backdrop had a lot to do with that. The amount that people were, especially early on, stuck indoors, things were really, really dire. People were dying with outrageously high rates. Because we've seen the amount of time that people spend digitally connected, you know, online, just skyrocketing because of the pandemic that really played a large part in people coming out in the numbers they did for as long as they did. You know, I'm interested in not only what's happening in the U.S., but what's happening abroad. And for years and years, we've talked about movements that have sprouted abroad and managed to sustain themselves for a long time, months, you know, in places like Hong Kong, Thailand, Ukraine, or Egypt, uh, you know, in the last few decades. One of the questions that I've always kind of sought to answer as a journalist Would something like that ever be possible in the U.S.? What would have to happen for it to occur? And why is it a thing that seems to happen more often abroad? I've covered quite a few one-offs in terms of protests and then, you know, more sustained protests over topics like climate change or healthcare. But often you would see those protests consistently attract a few hundred people over the span of a few days or a few weeks before they eventually died down. I really have never seen something like the Floyd protests here, where you know it just kept bringing new people down all the time. You would never see the same face twice in the same march for the span of those few months. Mm-hmm. Quite a few of the people who I spoke with at those Floyd protests had never really partaken in any sort of organized action before. A lot of first timers. First timers, exactly. And these are locals, you know, in the D.C. area. So they're not exactly stranger to those kinds of factions. They had been brought out by seeing the conversation that was occurring through this video of Floyd in Minneapolis. They felt they needed to take action. And even though it was in the middle of a pandemic, they were brought out to the streets for several days on end sometimes for the first time in their recent memory. The pandemic and just the general inability to act in a world that was kind of spiraling out of control really brought people out because they saw this as their chance to do something. And, you know, I think this is kind of a human reaction, right? I feel this. I'm sure you feel this. It's just whenever you're sitting behind a computer for days and days on end, you just kind of feel like you have to get out there and do something, you know? And I think that was the urge behind a lot of people who we saw come out of their homes and take you to the streets.
0: There wasn't anything to distract us either. I know I've seen things that have made me want to get involved, but on a personal level, I have other things going on in my life, you know? And if you're stuck at home, you maybe have fewer. Right. This is coming from someone, obviously, who does not have children, and cannot even fathom having children during the pandemic. But
2: yeah, the constant bombardment and, and you know, it, it, we faced this before the pandemic, but I think the pandemic served as a aggravating factor in like a lot of societal yeah. trends that were already established. It was already kind of hard to remove yourself from the news cycle. And now you're actually stuck inside and you have no choice but to immerse yourself in the negativity all the time. Right. That resulted in a lot of people who may not have been inherently political before starting to be exposed to these injustices for the first time and being inspired to make their voices heard in some capacity. Shifting now to the
1: ideological right, there was also some protests in DC that were pro Trump. The Magamillion protests came to DC, and you were on the ground covering those as well. I'm curious how the different ideological groups treated the pandemic when you were covering those protests. Did those protesters have social distancing in the same way as the others? And do you think the pandemic had the same effect on this ideological side?
2: Yeah, you know, I think there are definitely similarities and contrasts here. I think one of the similarities is that both from the right wing and the left wing, people were both immersed in fierce opinions on every issue that drove a lot of people to take some kind of action. I think in the end, people fell along their ideological lines. I really did try to capture this in the videos and the photos that I got from all these protests, because I think they really speak for themselves. The majority of people at these sometimes far right actions that we saw in D.C., especially the Capitol insurrection, did not have masks on or any form of face covering in them for that matter.
0: Very notably, because that's how they're being found.
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, people are uh, trying to identify people who entered the Capitol online And actually, you know, even before the pandemic, masks were fairly popular with protests on the left, especially because masks can supposedly be used to avoid facial recognition. At the Capitol, something that I really did note is the lack of face coverings. That's even more striking than the social distancing involved, which is just difficult to accomplish across any protest. But I think the mask wearing or lack thereof really did speak to some ideological divide. In January of this year and December as well, because there were MAGA marches in DC before the Capitol insurrection. It was not the first time they were in the city. Right. There were some signs beginning to appear among these far right protests that were already beginning to express vaccine skepticism. Mm. A lot of these movements on the far right have their roots in a push against globalization, conspiracy theories and all that. And I think the vaccines plugged into that framework that already existed. Right. And we're kind of seeing that play out now. The same thing with masks. These became wedge issues that crop up in pretty much any rally or protest right of center protests, you know, our protests, but I think just the way these things played out was quite different on the ground. I'm curious to see and hear about what
1: the effect of all these, you know, movements had on the area right around the National
2: Mall. We're only just now beginning to see some of the impacts that these protests had on that downtown area. I think the biggest vestige of all that turmoil in late spring remains the Lafayette fence. We're nearing the point where that's going to have been up for a year now. And there are some indications that they have started to maybe pull back a little in terms of security in Lafayette Square. The vast majority of that park remains closed off, although we're not that far away from Memorial Day, which will be the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's death. And if the fence is still up by that point, it'd be quite the day to mark. You know, I remember walking through that area last fall around the election, thinking to myself, man, a lot of these places that are boarded up, I really can't point to you like which emergency situation prompted them to put up those boards because we've been through so much as a city over the last year, right? We had the George Floyd protests, Wish there were acts of vandalism downtown. Several stores were smashed, some mm-hmm. were looted. But after that, we had several different rounds of protests over racial injustice, some of which also turned violent. We had tear gas in DC, something which has not at all been common in this city, despite the fact that protests happen all the time. That was nuts to me. I got tear gassed in the area of Farragut Square in late May, early June um, when things are really rough. Up until that point, I had really only experienced tear gas in Hong Kong, right, mm-hmm. where it was used a lot, you know, on an almost daily basis at one point. Came back to D.C. and almost a year later, I got tear gas to my own city. Uh, wow. It's just it's been the year of tear gas uh, just all across the world. We talk about the effects of protests in cities. We also really have to consider the effects that riot control munitions have on these neighborhoods as well. And I think in D.C. it's a little more clear cut because not a lot of people live actually in the downtown area. When you consider other cities, sear gas has been documented to actually have long-term health effects. So mm-hmm. when you are talking about this noxious stuff being deployed in streets where people not even just live, but work, commute, walk their children through each day, that stuff lingers. It doesn't disappear overnight. You have to consider whether this stuff is seeping into buildings, finding yeah. its way into furniture or, or the soil or what. This has been the topic of scientific studies for years In these protests, there were people being tear gassed repeatedly in the area of Lafayette Square, being pepper sprayed, and not just the gaseous stuff, you know, also facing rubber bullets, uh, sponge rounds. DC residents who were active in that space have faced a lot Mm. over the last year.
1: And all the while during a pandemic that was respiratory in nature. Mm. Exactly. You've spoken about the longevity of this past year as far as movements go. Where does this leave the social movement that we've seen? do you foresee it continuing on? What changes that were brought on by the pandemic are really here to stay?
2: It's a good question. I wish I had a crystal ball. I do not, unfortunately. I do get the sense that emerging from what seems to have been the worst part, at least in this country of the pandemic, I think people still have a lot of pent up anger. There is a lot of things that people still perceive to be going wrong in this country. Mm -hmm. And a really widespread sentiment that I heard In the aftermath of the conviction of Derek Chauvin, you know, the George Floyd killing is that, yeah, we've convicted one police officer, but black men and women in America are still being shot and killed by police officers frequently. Like, this is not over is what they say.
1: There have been at least a dozen high profile cases of police involved deaths since George Floyd's murder almost a year ago. Grassroots organizing and nationwide protests continue.
0: At least 440 people have been charged in the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. The Justice Department says they are still going through evidence and indicate that more will be charged shortly.
1: The University of Washington School of Medicine published a guide to protest safely on their coronavirus information page.
0: In addition to standard guidance, it says to avoid crowded activities that involve shouting or singing, and to avoid those who are not wearing masks or face coverings.
1: Thanks again to Alejandro for joining us. You can follow him on Twitter at ALE Tweets News where you can see his photography.
0: This episode was produced by me, Laura Spitalniak.
1: And me, Luke Garrett.
0: Our music is courtesy of Locksbeat.
1: Join us next Monday as the world reopens.